This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The first ever women's super rugby match last weekend was hailed as historic. Today, years of tireless work comes to fruition as a group of trailblazers stand on the shoulders of many to create a new story. But while that made media headlines, it's the same old story, more or less, according to a huge new survey of sports reports here. More than four out of five featured only men, and almost four out of five reports were created by men. Now, it was even more unequal ten years ago, so this week we asked two journalists who've pushed for change, are our media on the right track reporting women's sport? But first this week, how our government came under pressure over one of the world's most sensitive issues, the plight of Uyghur Muslims in China, and how it's turned into a thorny issue for our media as well. One day we're going to know exactly what's going on in Xinjiang, aren't we? And when you're uh, a queer talking to your great-great-great-grand Mokopuna about being the first Wahine Māori Foreign Affairs Minister, are you going to have any regrets? Are you confident that you're on the right side of history? That was News Hub political editor Tover O'Brien on the News Hub Nation show the weekend before last, putting the Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta right on the spot over the situation in Xinjiang in China's northwest. And that was a pretty tough question, given that no one quite knows how this will go down in history just yet, let alone what your own relatives might make of it. I'm confident that when my kids and their kids look at the things that I've done, I've done it to the best of my ability as an Indigenous Māori woman, but also for the benefit of the country, and it is not easy. And not easy is an understatement. China is extremely sensitive about what other countries say and do about this humanitarian issue. And in recent days, the relationship has been distinctly uneasy between the Tanifa and the Dragon, as some media have cast it. Our Five Eyes allies, Australia, Canada, the US and the UK, have all taken a tougher line lately in their relations with China. Just the day before Tova O'Brien put Nanaya Mahuta on the spot on News Hub Nation, MPs in the UK voted in the House of Commons to declare the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China as genocide. Now, last Wednesday, our parliament was due to debate whether to do the same. But in the end, all parties agreed to express grave concern over serious human rights abuses. There was no mention of genocide. However, the media have been asking that of politicians. Tober O'Brien put it to Nanai Mahuta like this a fortnight ago in that interview. You talk about our independent foreign policy a lot, so what are we going to do? Yeah, well, look, we, the last time we designated a, uh, a, an act of genocide uh, prior to the Genocide Convention Act of 1948 was the Holocaust, uh, and then we uh, labelled both Cambodia and Rwanda as acts of genocide. Look, uh, I'm willing to uh, get information about uh, what what we could do. So we're actively uh, in this, considering recognising in genocide I'm, I'm, I'm open to uh, getting uh, advice about this issue. And the Foreign Minister has been getting plenty of advice on that lately. The day before that debate in Parliament, for example, a group of Uyghur people living in New Zealand urged MPs to declare China's actions as genocide. On Morning Report, that request came from a lawyer, Sam Vincent, who said that New Zealand-based Uyghurs were too afraid to speak out themselves. Now, you're speaking to us, is it that they are too frightened that they don't want to be identified even within this country? Um, Yes, it is. They're they're terrified of, of publicly speaking up. But speaking up at the China Business Summit in Auckland just the day before, China's ambassador to New Zealand, Wu Ji, said that claims of genocide and forced labour in Xinjiang were lies fabricated by anti-China forces. And she made this warning. 
We hope that the New Zealand side could hold an objective and just position, abide by international law, and not to interfere in China's internal affairs, so as to maintain the sound development of our bilateral relations. But with claims and counterclaims playing out via the media like that, part of the problem for our understanding is there are few foreign reporters remaining in China itself to tell us what's going on. In the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers this week, their correspondent Eric Bagshaw, who has to cover China from Singapore, said that limiting media access to China was now having the desired effect. He said monitoring of a year's worth of Australian mainstream media coverage of China proved the cut through the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda was getting. A single inflammatory tweet from a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman accusing Australia of war crimes received more prominent coverage in two weeks than Xinjiang received in six months. Eric Bagshaw said that China's state-run tabloid, The Global Times, was now quoted more frequently across Australian media than Xi Jinping or any member of the Chinese embassy. And trade, he said, received three times more coverage than national security concern and 12 times more coverage than human rights issues. On 9 to noon last Tuesday, an Australian expert in China's northwest, Dr David Brophy at the University of Sydney, said that while China once tried to simply deny any suppression of ethnic groups within its borders, now it was briefing foreign media with its side of the story on Xinjiang. And one such briefing was held last month at the Chinese embassy in Canberra. I was actually invited to the briefing in Australia, but I, I didn't think it was the kind of exercise that I wanted to personally dignify by, by attending because these are standard propaganda presentations. Um, I've seen a little bit of the video that, they were being presented with and it was um, happy singing and dancing ethnic minorities um, fair that you're, you're likely to be fed with in these, these kinds of situations. You have then personal testimony from people um, who, who are um, it's very difficult to say exactly how they've ended up in that position to, um, to, to testify about their situations or you know, what sort of pressure might have been applied to them so no I don't think that um, these, uh, these performances have been um, particularly persuasive. They are going through the motions and there's clearly, clearly been instructions that this needs to be done. And on Friday last week, there was a similar briefing here for invited media. But this one was an online presentation hosted by the Embassy of the People's Republic of China in Wellington. Now, Media Watch wasn't on that list, but Paula Penfold from the Stuff Circuit team was. Last month, Stuff published their multimedia investigation called Deleted, which was all about Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, and links back to New Zealand business and politics. And after the briefing, Paula Penfold said on social media... Never in my career have I witnessed a press conference anything like this. It was absolutely extraordinary to the point of farce. Now, also invited to take part in that event was Stuff political reporter Thomas Manch. So did he feel the same way? I haven't been involved in press conferences like that before. I mean, no, you went in with some expectation knowing what had happened in Australia. But, but yeah, it was, it was certainly very, very unusual. But how did this event come about? Did you just suddenly receive an invitation out of the blue? Because it was an invite-only event, wasn't it, for some journalists and, uh, and experts? Um, and a lot of journalists, and myself included, knew absolutely nothing about it until it happened. Yeah, so I, I mean, I went back through my emails, and um, the first email I got was on the 19th of April, so I think it came, it came before we knew that the parliamentary motion was going to occur or come up. But, um, I, yeah, it was just an email out of the blue from... 
a spokesperson for the embassy who I deal with over email, though it came from a different email address than the one he conventionally uses. Um, they said, you know, great that you've expressed an interest in attending. Do you have any questions you'd like to put on the record first or, like, you know, um, advise them of early beforehand and then there were subsequent emails after that just making sure that we would we would show up and I was kind of aware that a few other journalists I knew like I'd spoken to Paula were, were invited but I wasn't sure how broad it was going to be. And did it feel to you like um, something that had been kind of ordered from the top something that wasn't really a news event but something that for kind of diplomatic purposes you know had been arranged? Yeah, I, I do wonder that because, I mean, realistically, what could the Chinese embassy here expect the outcome to be? They've had similar experiences overseas in terms of and, and the sort of the flow on media reports from it, um, noting how unusual it is and, and how the information didn't really directly address the question at hand, um, which is the, um, you know, the abuse of the Uyghur people. But I, I do wonder if it was more a diplomatic effort. The, news, the embassy in New Zealand thought, given where the situation is at now, this is our time to do this. You know, this is one of the tools we have in our playbook. Was there anything to be learned by you know the presentations that were there and and whatever say the ambassador and other speakers had to say about the situation? I mean, I'm inclined to say not really. The um, you know, the, a lot of information was conveyed. Um, you know, how many, you know, what the sort of the GDP and the the poverty level in um, Xinjiang, how that's changed, and you know how much rail line there are now, and um, you know, there's a there's a lot of information in there. But it was it it did really feel like you know the performative the the lines we hear from. Chinese um, foreign foreign um, service spokespeople, you know, commonly. So, I you know, I I personally didn't go in thinking we might learn anything new. Afterwards, I also asked the question: Actually, is this worth reporting on because of the content of it and because the news value was questionable? But the fact that it occurred, I thought, well, gosh, we better report that. In the background to all this is. Last year we saw the last two Australian journalists, for example, were reporting for Australian news media outlets anyhow, had to leave the country, um, so there are none now. So do you think this is part of a strategy which is, you know, we're not getting messages from reporters uh, based in China so much, it's going to be messages that are tailored through various channels, and this might be one of them, online briefings uh, for journalists and experts uh, in, in different countries around the world? No, certainly. I mean, it seems like one of the few opportunities that we have to interact directly with China in general. I mean, we um, even in New Zealand, it's I think it's a little bit different from the experience in, in Australia and the like. You know, obviously these journalists can, can no longer be in the country, but they do have more direct face-to-face contact with with the with the bureaucrats in their countries. Whereas our embassy even is is more remote. Like it's very unlikely that you'll ever get an interview with um, the ambassador to New Zealand. So what opportunities did you or others who took part in it, whether they were journalists or academics or commentators, to actually ask questions of um, people that matter, like, for example, um, the ambassador, who I, I gather was, was part of the, the uh, broadcast, if I could call it that? I was reluctant, given how I expected the event would go, and also my colleague Paula um, asked a, a series of questions, and a lot of them were around, why won't you let people into Xinjiang? Why won't you let the UN into Xinjiang? Why wouldn't you let journalists? Why can't we... Why, why must we receive information this way or interact with suppo- people who are supposedly from Xinjiang this way? That was the main tenor of it. Same same questions from Jerry Brownlee. Same questions, in some respect, from Jason Young, an academic. Um, and the response generally was, oh, the door is always open. But, of course, we would never do that because that would impinge on our sovereignty.
Yeah, so not quite, not quite an open door in, in that regard, absolutely. But uh, there was a fascinating quote in your piece, uh, quoting Jerry Brownlee, who's the National Party's foreign affairs spokesperson. Um, he said, with all due respect to the speaker that has just finished, you quote him as saying, uh, you welcome people, you welcome journalists to come in, but it's caveated, says Jerry Brownlee, with what looks like heavy restrictions. For us, this is a very strange position. The effort appears to be nothing to see here, move on, when in our culture, at least, it means there actually is something to see. Is it actually helpful for Chinese authorities having organised this outreach, if you could call it that, with New Zealand media, to hear something like that, to hear a senior politician say, look, actually, I don't find this at all convincing, and, uh, you know, journalists clearly aren't free to come in and report from that region or or your country? I don't know if it's helpful for them, Um I think it's helpful for New Zealand because that's New Zealand's perspective, you know, and the government's the government's view on this is that is that, you know, there should be unfettered access um to, to the region to establish what is happening. So I think I mean I think that's from to hear that from an opposition spokesperson is probably is probably quite useful too. It, it shows a degree of consensus um in New Zealand about what should occur. Whether it tangibly makes a difference, I'm I'm doubtful. And what about others who might have taken part in this event? I mean, you mentioned um, yourself, a couple of other journalists. For example, there was also, your piece mentions David Mann, who's a New Zealander who does business in China, but also writes uh, columns, opinion columns for um, the New Zealand Listener magazine, uh, interest.co.nz, for example, where he's, he's been arguing recently that New Zealand has to act in its own best interests. Um, you know, so uh, clearly not coincidental that he was one of the ones, I guess, picked um, by the organisers of this event. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. Him and I think it was Dave Bromwich from the New Zealand China Friendship Association or some some organisation with such a similar name. They the, the questions were clearly, you know, they'd prepared them beforehand. There were reflections on their own experiences of travelling in the region. Um, I don't know how, like, the, their reflections didn't seem to maybe be as recent as, you know, some of the, the more concerning and credible allegations coming out of the region now. In Parliament, we would refer to those as sort of patsy questions. It was quite an interesting contrast because that's not a voice you often hear in the discussion in New Zealand now. In the course of covering this or or any other stories about politics and diplomacy with China, have Chinese authorities or the embassy here um, or the allies maybe sort of reached out to you, tried to lobby you or um, have an input into your reporting or understanding of the issues until this, this particular event you were invited to take part in? No, not 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 really at all. Um, I mean, I've heard of previous in previous years um, journalists being invited to events with the ambassador or sort of like exhibitions that that are similar in nature to this. Receive my interaction with them has been relatively limited. I mean, in the last eighteen months, I've been in this job and been interested in the issue. I've been contacting the embassy relatively regularly, asking for responses, questions, primarily interviews. Um, I've never received an interview. I've never met the ambassador as yet. Um, it's always such requests are always passed on, and often you might seek something, and two days later a statement will be received in return. Um, so, so no, I mean, nothing, nothing anything more than that. It'd be interesting to see if if this briefing does is the, the beginning of a new pattern. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, what would actually help uh, if, if, you know, as you say, you're not the only journalist that's had difficulty getting either um, prompt or, um, or, or direct responses to specific questions when New Zealand-China relations are the topic of news stories. What would actually help um, uh, and might be more effective other than slightly contrived um, sort of 
broadcast our online press conferences like this one. Oh, I mean, we always want direct access, don't we? We always want to to speak to people face to face, and I think I think, you know, I mean, given the COVID era and all, um, the ambassador is the is the one direct re- representative of the Chinese government in New Zealand, and and I think more opportunities to interact would would be um, would be useful. Um, whether we would any we would gain anything of use out of it is another question. I mean, um, the fairly um, prescribed responses often. And when uh, Dr Brophy spoke on the Nine to Noon programme about um, the same sort of thing happening in Australia in the context of of them trying to reach out to to journalists and experts in in a similar way, he talked about very heavily produced, uh, or he described them as propaganda videos, painting a very rosy and even colourful picture of Xinjiang. Um, Were those sorts of videos part of this presentation that um, you you and others who'd... uh, hooked into this online conference had to watch? Definitely. There are, there are possibly about five. I've, I kind of lost track. Um, they, the videos were, they, they struck me as almost like tourism ads, you know, um, sweeping scenes, landscapes, you know, people happy in their, in their, um, in their employment, etc. It was, it was an advertisement. Well, clearly, Thomas, uh, you were sceptical that you'd get anything of genuine information or uh, newsworthiness out of it um, before uh, signing up for this event. Um, But do you think that um, if there are future ones, you'd be inclined to take part? I think probably would participate again, if only to see what is happening, because you know, and see if there's any shift. I, I mean, it serves a purpose at least in terms of understanding what messages are being sent out, you know, you know what, the, what the view is. And you never know what someone might say in an event like that. There might be a message in there that, that is significantly different from what we've heard previously. There was Stuff political reporter Thomas Manch, one of the New Zealand journalists invited by the Chinese embassy in Wellington to take part in an online briefing about the issue of the Uyghur Muslim minority in the Xinjiang province in northwest China. And this week, political parties in Parliament unanimously expressed grave concern about human rights abuses there. And Stuff's multimedia presentation about New Zealand's links to Xinjiang, deleted, which we mentioned earlier, is on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Today we witnessed the first ever women's super rugby clash between the Blues and Chiefs' brand new women's teams. It only took 25 years to get here, so was it worth the wait? That was TVNZ sports news presenter Hayley Holt last weekend, shortly after the first ever women's super rugby match had wrapped up. That historic Blues versus Chiefs Wahine clash didn't pull anything like the crowd that 660 drew to Eden Park the previous weekend, but it got plenty of media attention, including live coverage on Sky Sport 1 from the kickoff. Today, years of tireless work comes to fruition as a group of trailblazers stand on the shoulders of many to create a new story. Right through to the final whistle. Arakua puts it to the toe, it goes out into touch, and history made on Eden Park. It is the Chiefs 39, the Blues 12, in the first ever women's Super Rugby match. The match was live blogged by Stuff and the Herald, and that evening it led the sports bulletins on TVNZ1 News and News Hub at 6. And the media verdict seemed to be that women's rugby was the winner on the day. But what about other days? That Super Rugby match was a one-off and it may not be until the Women's Rugby World Cup kicks off here next September, COVID permitting, that Women's Rugby will again push the men's game down the bulletins. 
Last March, a survey of nearly 70,000 online sports stories from New Zealand's major news organisations over the past three years revealed that men's rugby gets more news coverage than every women's sport combined. Just 10% of the online sports coverage was dedicated to women, the survey found, and 7% covered sport featuring both men and women. But the remaining 83% of space and airtime devoted to sport was dedicated to the men. And another startling stat was that netball accounted for 80% of the women's sports coverage, but that's only 2% of the overall sports news. Last weekend, the same day as that first ever, but possibly only ever, women's super rugby clash, the website of the Australian Ministry of Sport reported that New Zealand media leads the world in gender-balanced sports coverage. It said that the umbrella group Sport New Zealand had scrutinised 40,000 sports items in local media and found women's sport accounted for 15% of sports coverage in the country's media, an improvement on a comparable 2011 study in New Zealand which said the gender balance sat at just 11%. But that's still a higher proportion than similar studies had found in Australia, where it was 7%, the UK, where it was somewhere between 4 to 10 and in the USA, it was just 5%. But Sport New Zealand's chief executive, Raylene Castle, said in that report, it's just not good enough. So how much media interest was there in this analysis of the job the media were doing? Not much. The Otago Daily Times trumpeted that it had come out on top. Women's sport accounted for 19.5% of the paper's sports coverage during the survey, they said. But the Otago Daily Times was the only mainstream media outlet in the survey to actually report the results. And another key finding for editors to ponder also went unreported. Four out of every five sports stories with a reporter's name attached was attributed to a male journalist. And that's an uncomfortable echo of the headline finding of Sport New Zealand's recent survey. 83% of tens of thousands of stories were about men's sports. So what then should our media be aiming for? Hayden Donnell asked Suzanne McFadden, who edits the locker room section at newsroom.co.nz, which is dedicated to women's sport, and Stuff Senior Sports reporter Zoe George, formerly a journalist here at RNZ, where she also hosted Fair Play, a monthly podcast with the Global Women's Sports Network. And before that, she was a media manager for Japan's national men's and women's cricket teams. Kia ora, Zoe. Kia ora. And kia ora, Suzanne. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora. Thanks, Hayden. So we're talking about Sports NZ's report about the coverage of women's sport in New Zealand. And the finding is, essentially, that women's sport gets 15% of the media coverage of sport in New Zealand. That is actually a world-leading figure. Isn't that kind of depressing? Well, I think think because it is world-leading, we actually need to acknowledge our wins here to start with. Now, there has been an increase in coverage of women in sport from 2011, from 11% to 15%, which also we're seeing more women in bylines than ever before. And the language that we're using and the way that we talk about women in sports also changing. So back in 2016, Cambridge University uh, did research around the language that we use on women, and it was like pregnancy and pretty, and now it's strong and powerful. So they're all wins. And if we look at it that way, then the only way is up from here. You agree with that, Suzanne? Yeah, I do. But I still think that I'm still not happy with 15%. And I know that Zoe isn't either. Um, Until we change the face of our newsrooms, I don't know that we're going to get any better. You know, having more women in newsrooms, having more women making decisions in newsrooms, 
And I think that's where a change will lie. Now, the research shows that women are more likely to write about women in sport. But at staff, you know, we've only got a very small handful of women in our sports team. But it's the men who are driving this change, who are allies for women. What are the structural factors that are keeping women out of the sports sections of newsrooms? And how do you turn that around? At Locker Room, we... um are trying to encourage more women to write for us as contributing writers, but we've also got a full-time writer in Ashley Stanley, who we introduced to journalism through Locker Room last year, and she's doing an amazing job. The problem seems to be that there aren't a lot of young women out there who see sports reporting as a viable job. And I think that's where another area that we can change, you know, that we can make it look appealing make them understand that hopefully they will be treated well Mm. in a newsroom. TVNZ have made a real conscious effort to have more women on their sports reporting team. And because I know, you know, I've often heard sports editors say, we had a job for a woman, but nobody applied. Mm. You know, how far did they look and how viable did they make that position? Is there similarities with something like the representation of Māori or Pacifica mm. people in, in, in news stories? There's some parallels there because when you speak about that, Māori and Pacifica people say, well, I'm, it's hard to just be thrown into a reporting role, a junior role, and actually what you need is people that are like me and understand me in executive roles and leadership mm. roles. Absolutely, absolutely. And within sport, not just in the media, but in the wider sporting context, uh, you look at the government mandate that said that all sports bodies that receive $50,000 or more in government funding must have 40% representation of females on their boards by the end of the year. And if we look at something like New Zealand rugby, for example, they've just had the AGM. They've got two women, which makes up about 28%. They're going to miss that deadline. One of the facts I found really striking in the report was that actually when you separate out women's sports presenting roles and women's sports reporting roles, Mm. the stats actually go down a heap. So, for instance, News Hub goes down from 29% women to 8.6% women when you exclude sports presenters. The reporting roles and the actual journalism roles, those are the places where the narratives are created, Mm. right? So is that a real part of the problem there? women don't have influence over the narratives. What I found so fascinating about some of this research was that there were five sports in which women got more coverage than men. Netball, obviously, uh, but then there were three other sports within that that all had welfare issues within the last nine months. So gymnastics, canoe racing and hockey. And you go, hmm, this is quite interesting. Why is this? With rugby as well, though, let's talk about that because that was something more than 30% of the overall uh, you know, coverage of sport and predominantly men's sport. I think it was like 90% or something rugby. But the thing is, though, it's not just about media. It's about sport-wide as well. So when COVID hit... The first thing that got sidelined by rugby was women's rugby. So how are we meant to report on women when sports bodies are sidelining women? Yeah, I agree with Zoe. It's definitely up to the sports as well. You know, in in a sport where you have both women and men playing, you know, we'll get story ideas about the men in a a press release and down at the bottom, you know, there'll be a one paragraph about 
the women's equivalent to that competition. Yeah, and one of the things that wasn't captured in this research as well, uh, and it's actually going to be released, I think, this month by Sport New Zealand, they are doing a case study on the Super Smash, which is the T20 domestic T20 competition in which men and women played double headers. So they're playing the same game in the same conditions on the same day. Uh, and at Stuff, we made a huge push to ensure that there was 50-50 representation there, and we achieved that. I'm an NBA fan. When I try and get my news on the NBA, it's very easy. There's a huge infrastructure surrounding it. There's all the box scores. There's a huge amount of commentary. There's, a, you know, there's all of it is provided to me very easily. And if I want to do the same for the WNBA, it's not quite as mm. easy. How much of the disparity in coverage is due to that? ease of access and uh, that goes down to the broadcast of the sport itself. <laughs> well, yeah, you turn on the TV and every time you turn on the TV you see men playing rugby, right? Yes. Yeah, it's almost borderline saturation, but someone might argue with me on that one and that's fine and that's okay. But there's this whole argument as well that what's the point of covering women's sport or what's the point of broadcasting women's sport if A, no one watches and B, it doesn't bring any money? Because if we look at the last Women's FIFA Football World Cup, which, by the way, New Zealand is co-hosting in a couple of years' time and it's going to be super exciting, they had a global audience of 1.4 billion people. You can't tell me that there's not a market there. And if we compare that to the last Men's Rugby World Cup, they had an audience of about... I don't know, 860 million, give or take a few 10,000? This is what gets me. If you're a sports fan, you're a sports fan, and it shouldn't matter who's playing. Yeah, we saw that on Saturday, mm. you know, with the um, first super rugby clash between the Blues woman and the Chiefs woman. Mm. And um, the, the standard of rugby was superb. But one thing that really bothered me was that the game started at 4.35, and Eden Park didn't open the gates until 4.15. The people who were waiting outside didn't get to see the players warming up. Now, that's part of the whole experience of going to a ground. If you're not seeing it, how can you become a fan of it? It's an amazing time, though, to be a sports journalist in New Zealand who covers women's sport because we've got three World Cups coming up in the next two years and the IWG Women in Sport Conference in New Zealand, the biggest global conference in the world on gender equity in sport. So this is the best time for New Zealand to really, sorry to excuse the pundit, but to pick up the ball and run with <laughs> it here. You know, this is the time to really make these women's sports stand out and to give them equal attention, maybe even a bit more attention because of the standard of the competition that we're going to be seeing here, but also then to keep it up and carry it on. That's going to be the biggest challenge. Suzanne, you have basically launched a venture at Newsroom, Locker Room, to target especially that market. Has that been a challenge? Is there people that have real interest in this and it's not being served by other media? Newsroom is all about spotting a gap in the media landscape and filling it. And that's why we started Locker Room three years ago. It has picked up readers and interest. And I think the hardest thing to get across the line is sponsorship. So, mm. okay, Newsroom has sponsored in a, or was funded in a different model than most. And when we wanted to introduce a new female sports journalist into the industry, we went out looking for sponsorship to pay for a scholarship. We knocked on doors for a year and got turned away, or we'd go to companies that we thought would be 
totally into sponsoring women's sport. I mean, and they'd say, yeah, we think it's a great idea. We'll just take it to our board. And then they'd come back and say, oh, no, we're not um, ready to spend any money in that area. And, at and the how moment. many men are on that board? <laughs> exactly. You've yeah. got them one. Hand. That's exactly right. So it was a really hard ask until um, Sky came to us and said, you know, we hear that you're looking for it and we are trying to encourage more um, females into the industry. And they've been fantastic mm. with their programs. Yeah, but I'm still quite surprised, I don't know whether that's being naive, that corporates aren't seeing this amazing opportunity to back women's sport right now. And this is it, right? If we look at men's sport, it's an established business. Let's look at it this way. It's an established business. Women's sport's a startup. Now's the time for investment. And that's an investment of time, investment of money. We are surrounded by a whole bunch of like-minded people, but we know that they're out there. And it also comes down to the audience as well. If you're a sports fan, click on an article. On the flip side as well, though, our audience in regards to sport is changing. So, you know, it used to be uh, slightly skewed to older men, who engage with sport, but it's actually now, um, it's really interesting looking at some of the stats, you know, in, in regards to our home environment, uh, 80% of the financial decisions are made by women. Ultimately, they're the ones who are going to decide whether or not they're going to spend their money to take their kids to see the Chiefs women or the Chiefs men to play. So let's write for them as well. Five years' time, you're in charge of the media. You get to sort of <laughs> enact your entire vision, what the sports media will look like yeah. in five years' time. Yeah. What does it look like, Suzanne? In five years' time, I'd like to see it a 40-60 split, 40% women, 60% men, because it's going to take a hell of a lot longer than five years to get 50-50. Equal number of women and men in sports newsrooms around the country. I'd just like to see more sports journalists full stop. I mean, you know, we've had some major cuts in our industry, especially around um, the time of the first lockdown last year. So I want to see newsrooms repopulated with writers who are happy to write about women's sport or men's sport. Men are totally capable of writing about women's sport too, and we're seeing a lot of that, so that's great too. I'd also like the idea around challenging what traditional sports journalism looks like and going, actually, sports journalism is journalism full stop um, and exploring that sports journalism is not just results-based um, that there's more to sport than what happens on the field. I would love to see 50-50 split. It's going to take a little while, but for now I would love for news organisations to go, okay, 15% is a really good base. How do we grow on it? What's the next six months look like? What does the next 12 months look like? Because ultimately that's how we're going to get to the 50%. It's like climbing Mount Everest. You're not going to do it in one giant leap. It's going to take little steps, and we need to recognise how important those little steps are. And when we hit them, celebrate them, mark them, go, awesome, how can we get even better? That was Zoe George, senior sports reporter at Stuff, and we also heard there from Suzanne McFadden, who edits the locker room section at newsroom.co.nz, which is dedicated to women's sport. And there they were talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about media coverage of women's sport, which was surveyed by Sport NZ in a report published this week. You'll find a link to that and more of Hayden's chat with Suzanne and Zoe in the online version of the story that's on the RNZ website or the RNZ app under the title Upping the Game for Women's Sport. And it's also in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts.
Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how news media outlets sometimes poll their own audiences on topical issues and then report the results as if they represent public opinion. And to make the point, we asked our followers on Twitter if news media should be barred from doing this because the results are unscientific and therefore unreliable. A whopping 88% of our respondents agreed, and then stats expert Professor Thomas Lumley told us this was also an unreliable result as far as wider public opinion is concerned, for exactly the same reason. Indeed, Professor Lumley told us that polls like this can actually make us less informed about issues, thanks to something called anchoring bias. And he also told us he thought that reporting results like this as news contradicted the Media Council's accuracy, fairness and balance principle. You wouldn't just go out um, on the street and interview half a dozen people and call that a uh, representative, you know, and say that that described New Zealand opinion. And I think the media council would object if you did. And the same way here, I think criteria for what, what sorts of polls count as evidence for their results uh, would be valuable. Now, last week we mentioned that the Media Council had in fact considered one such complaint last year about a question of the day online poll from NewsHub asking people for their preferred Prime Minister. But that complaint wasn't upheld by the Council. Its decision noted that while such informal polls can be misleading, they can also provide an entertaining and even rough and ready guide as to what people think. But we didn't mention last week that the council also said in that decision people should be able to judge the validity of polls and the council would have upheld that complaint if NewsHub hadn't added a disclaimer to the poll stating that it would only run for 24 hours and that the results were unscientific. And as a result of that, NewsHub now does this for all of its question of the day polls. The Media Council also said at that time there's no harm in ask the audience polls if the subject is relatively trivial and treated as a bit of fun. But using them for a serious subject during an election campaign does undermine the reputation of the media, the Council said, because those polls are prone to manipulation and could even be used as fake news fodder. And the Media Council did uphold a complaint about that as well in 2018, when another Daily News Hub poll asked people to rate the Prime Minister at the United Nations. At the end of the AM show one morning, they said that 46% said her performance was great at the UN, while 29% said it was poor. But by the end of the day, only 4% of the respondents said it was great, and 95% had said it was poor. Now, those results were online for days, with no indication of the number of votes cast, and MediaWorks eventually admitted that the poll had been artificially manipulated. The Media Council said at that time news media need to take special care to ensure they are not being manipulated to political ends and to ensure that the public can have faith in the integrity of their mainstream news sources. And with that in mind, last weekend here on Media Watch, we also spoke to the lead authors of a report called Trust in News in New Zealand, which surveyed 1,200 New Zealanders back in March. And we heard they reported lower levels of trust for all major news outlets than a similar survey recorded just 12 months earlier. Now, one of the reasons for the decline, the authors concluded, was the overlapping of news and opinion in some news outlets, and some respondents also said politicisation was a problem. And when discussing what the authors concluded were statistically significant falls in trust for NewsHub and the talk radio network NewsTalk ZB, one of the report's authors, Dr Greg Treadwell from the Auckland University of Technology, pointed out that the survey was conducted at a time when controversy about talk radio hosts John Banks and Sean Plunkett was in the headlines. 
At that time, John Banks had recently been fired as a felon host after outrage of his handling of a racist talkback caller, and Sean Plunkett had agreed to quit his afternoon show on the same network after criticism of his approach to race issues on the air. Now, Dr Treadwell said in last weekend's Media Watch that this could have influenced their survey results and that could have created the impression that these events dented the reputation of News Talk ZB. However, both broadcasters were working for an entirely different network, Magic Talk, which is owned by rival broadcaster MediaWorks, whose workplace culture and practices are now undergoing an independent review. Well, that's all we have for you in this weekend's Media Watch. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.